Welcome to Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. Each week, we'll be having fun and candid conversations with chefs, journalists, food lovers, and kitchen experts from around the world. And we'll also be joined by food suppliers, farmers, producers of the ingredients to talk about how they're made, why the chefs like working with them, and how they're using them in their kitchens today. Today, we'll be talking about a very unique ingredient, kelp. So a lot of people may not be familiar with edible kelp and seaweed. I like to refer to them as a new vegetable. A sea vegetable. Yeah, the reaction when you talk about seaweed and kelp, I think it's becoming more accepted, but I think a lot of people look at you like, you know, what are you talking about? I know what you're thinking, Andrea. You're thinking when I go to the beach and I'm riding the waves and then I come on shore and I've got this long green seaweed creature looking thing stuck to my body. Did you know you can actually eat that? Now I know that you can actually eat that, but initially I didn't, when I first heard, I didn't know what kelp was. People have been eating this for hundreds of years. It's highly nutritious. It's rich in iodine. It's rich in vitamins. It's rich in all of these wonderful things. It actually tastes very good. It does have to be processed. So you can't just like forget your lunch and eat kelp on the beach? You could, but it would, I don't know how pleasant an experience that would be. The whole thing about kelp and the whole seaweed. So and this is maybe five years ago, six years ago, I started seeing on social media, these really famous chefs. Daniel Hum is one that comes to mind from 11 Madison Park, that they were traveling to a restaurant outside of London and they were having a dish called slip sole with seaweed butter. Try saying that really quickly. Slip, slip sole, sole with, with seaweed, seaweed butter. butter. And it was, I was like, what in the, it sounded so bizarre to me. Yeah. Was it like Dover sole? Yeah, it's, I guess, slip sole yeah. similar to Dover sole. It's a, it's a flat fish. The chef there is making a preparation with a butter, compound butter, which was basically minced seaweed with the butter. And then he melts it onto the fish. Sounds really good. Yeah. But like very interesting. Like you don't really see that very often. No, I'd never right. heard of it in my life. I mean, we all know about like Japanese seaweed salad right. and, you know, sushi, nori rolls and stuff like that, the sheets of seaweed. But as it often happens in my life, things kind of come together. The universes collide. And I got a call from a chef out in East Hampton, New York, Chef Joe Romuto. And Joe said, John, I, I was just contacted by a company in Maine that is, you know, farming kelp and it's this incredible product and it's really amazing how sustainable it is and all the good things that these guys are doing. I figured, you know, what I know what you do for a living. I, you know, you should meet them. Yeah. And they came down to New York. They came down to the chef's warehouse offices and they showed me the products. And I thought, wow, these are really cool, but I have no idea what in you know, what are you going to do with these? Like, how, you know, outside of making the seaweed butter. So I went to a person who I know that is very creative and that's Dan Barber, who's the chef at Stone Barnes. And I brought the kelp people to Dan. Dan Barber, as he always is, is completely gracious. He opens up, he rolls out the red carpet. Um, we love him for that. Super open-minded. They proceed to tell him the whole story of how the product is produced, sustainably raised, how it really helps the ocean. Um, we'll get into this whole discussion later. But Dan immediately, I could see he started, the, the wheels were spinning. Mm -hmm. And he became one of the first uh, kind of ambassadors for the product. And he started making some really unique dishes with it, with his team. You know, he's got a, a lot of talented young chefs that work alongside him at both Blue Hill in the city and, and Stone Barns. And they came up with some really cool dishes. One of them, which was a uh, foie gras that was wrapped, uh, the kelp 
wrapped the foie gras and then it was poached. It goes back to almost like a traditional French recipe where they used to take leaves of cabbage and wrap it. So they did that their own special riff on that. So another chef that I found was really into kelp and edible seaweed is a woman named Victoria Blamey. And she's really a, a super talent, very creative, you know, a groundbreaking chef. She worked at places like Mugaritz in Spain, which is a three Michelin star restaurant. She worked for Paul Liebrandt at Corton in New York. She helped open the restaurant, Atera. She was also the executive chef at Gotham Restaurant after Alfred Portale left in New York City. That was a big deal at the time. Huge deal. She ended up going to become one of the chefs in residency at Blue Hill Stone Barns. So mm-hmm. Dan Barber kind of handed, I don't know, did you hear about this? Yeah. These visiting chefs would come and take over the yeah, restaurant. Like post-COVID. Every three months, he has a new chef who comes in. Exactly. And so that was earlier this year. And I started seeing all of these images of these dishes that she was doing with kelp and seaweed. And I don't know her. I never met her. You know, she worked at all these great places, but just for whatever reason, our paths never crossed. Um, and then it turns out we had a mutual friend, Gaylene Quinn. Mm-hmm who runs the Bogota Wine and Food Festival. Gaylene does a of lot that. of good for yeah. the food community. She's wonderful. And so Gaylene kind of connected us with Victoria. So she's going to be our guest today. I'm so excited to talk to her, a lover of kelp and seaweed. But I will be honest, you know, this is not the easiest item to sell. When we launched this product five years ago, you know, part of my job is to educate um, our sales team on new products. And then they take those products out to all of our chef customers in the marketplace. And I think, you know, chefs, they're, they're in their kitchens. Their frame of reference can sometimes be a little bit small. You know, they're, they're making a menu every day. So it's our job to kind of keep them up with the trends of what's happening. You know, when the Times article came out, kelp is the new kale, you know, we kind of sprung into action and started pushing this product, you know, across chefs. And I think it was hard. It was it was definitely a hard sell for the for the sales team because chefs really had to be very creative, uh, you know, with what do I do with this? At Chefs Warehouse, we hire a lot of ex-chefs as salespeople for that reason. So when you walk in, you can kind of have some ideas about like what you can do with it in terms of a compound seaweed butter or a slaw, mixing it in with a smoothie, whatever you're going to be doing. We try and educate the sales team so they can support the chef. We get approached with products all the time from yeah. people around the world. Some things are so cool and unique that you almost inherently want to bring them in. There's a period, it depends on the item, but there's a period where we kind of need to test the waters before we start buying it. And there's definitely customers of ours that we go to for those insights. Like, Absolutely. We need your opinion. What would you do with this? Um, and you kind of yeah, this is our take exam- their temperature a little bit yeah, on it's it. It's our R&D. It's yes. our research and development before we launch something into the market, before it goes into the Chef's Warehouse catalog. We need to know all about this product. We need to know... Would you buy this? How it's made. You know, the, And then there's always the basic things like what's the cost and all this. But how is it a viable item for a restaurant or a home consumer to purchase, to use. It's something they're going to want. And then we love, you know, if it's made by, you know, really good people, all the better. A lot of our suppliers over the years have become great personal friends of mine. And I was lucky to recently have visited a very unique 
production of kelp. There's a company up in Maine that is producing it right now, and it's a product that we brought into the Chef's Warehouse. Yeah, we'll be talking to Brianna Warner from Atlantic Sea Farms later on. They're doing some really awesome things for fishermen in Maine and the whole aquaculture community out there. Yeah, there's a lot of wonderful stuff that surrounds the whole process of growing kelp. This episode is in partnership with the Chef's Warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media. So I'm really happy today to have Victoria Blamey in the studio with us. She joins us from Fulgurance Laundromat and has a great history of cooking in New York and around the world. So welcome. Thank you, guys. I'm excited Thanks to be here. here. Yeah. Andrea and I are very excited to talk to you today about kelp and uh-huh. seaweed. <laughs> We heard that you're called the kelp hero. <laughs> I only saw it recently. <laughs> I, call I, her like, the qu- I call her the queen of kelp. It's funny. You know, I think actually after Stoneburns, I had a, like three dishes with seaweed as the main component, which was really incredible. I think it's really hard to do that. Not necessarily because you don't know really what to make. I think it's just more sort of the venue. People can actually be open to eat a you know, dish with seaweed. I think a lot of people, even chefs, professional cook mm. chefs don't, think of seaweed outside of maybe Japanese nori or snacks or little things like that. I mean, that's exactly it. I've been saying that to a lot of the people that I met at Stoneburns, some of the people that dine and they're really excited to be there. So there was a lot of interaction. And I think one of the few things that I used to say is people are very open to eat seaweed when it's a Japanese background or it's a Japanese kitchen, uh, restaurant cuisine, or even Asian, you know. But when once you take seaweed out of that kind of cultural context, people really don't know what to expect. And I don't think necessarily they're open to the experience because it's unknown. How did you learn about it or what kind of got you... So I think um, <laughs> the menu of stone burns were really differently compared to everything else that I've done before. It had a lot of history and research. It was more of a cultural research of peeling the layers of, you know, what of sort of Chilean cuisine it is for me. So um, seaweed's really popular in Chile? Well, in Chile, seaweed is something we grew up eating. Seaweed is all along the coast. I mean, north to south, yeah, even Patagonia as well. So Would you have known that, John? I did not know that. <laughs> it's much more familiar to me. I won't say that I was a super big fan when I was 10 years old of eating, obviously, uh, cochayuyu, which is the main seaweed that we use. But it grew into me, you know, and then I just, yeah, it's familiar. Um, I'm probably these days, you know, I think people or younger people don't necessarily eat it as much. But it has a cultural background that is known to me. For chefs right now, especially with what's going on with global warming, climate change, what we eat, how we eat, you know, food waste. I think it's important to understand that it's a main ingredient for us to incorporate in our diet. Absolutely. I think what a lot of people don't realize around the world too is people have been eating seaweed in the United States back in the 1800s. If you look at old cookbooks from New England and also in the UK and England, there was a lot of seaweed consumption. For sure. Simply because it was there, it was there, locally yeah. accessible. Well, recollecting, you know, I mean, people were recollecting yeah. and that's what you used to do. I mean, obviously different parts of Asia, South America. I mean, there's a huge history of kelp and seaweed in general, just 
people kind of don't know about it, but you're right. All these like secondhand books, you know, that I had actually when I went to do my dinner at Stoneburns, or, well, the residency, it was really helpful because they were literally from like, you know, 1820, 1941. And they're all telling the story about recollecting seaweed. You touched upon a little bit about the sustainability aspect. Mm-hmm. Why should we be eating kelp? Why should we be eating seaweed? Obviously, I'm not a scientist. You know, I think this is something that I was talking to Brie from Atlantic Sea Farms a lot because I was actually getting a very different part of the seaweed from them. It was a stipe, which is kind of like the trunk of the tree that will be the trunk of the seaweed. You have the blades, you have the stipe. I think Dan Barber called it the spinal cord. Yeah, it is like the spinal cord. And then I was plating that on a plate, you know, that it resembled the coast of Chile. So everything was just kind of, um, it made sense. But um, with Brie, when I was talking about stipe, and she said, you know, I don't have an audience. No one really knows what it is. And she was so excited. I said, you know, in Chile, we eat this type and it's called ulte. And that's the type of the cochayuyu, you know, which is the seaweed, the main seaweed that we eat. Not only it's good in nutrients for you and proteins and minerals, you know, I mean, I, I don't really know the exact breakdown, but at the same time, seaweed actually cleans the water even more than oysters. And oysters, you know, they help with the acidification of the water, CO2. So there's so much good by the fact of supporting the farmers also growing the seaweed, which happens a lot right now in Maine. And I'm working actually with, I would say like 80 to 90% of the product and seafood and seaweed is from Maine right now. The amount of seaweed they've been harvesting, it's mind blowing. Food is moving in a different way. We have to change our ways of eating. We have to change our ways of behavior. We got to get with the program now. You know, we're already too late. I think it's a challenge for every chef to know how to incorporate that because obviously it's different for every chef and their palate profile and everything else we can't just keep doing the same thing we do all the time you know so what do you do with the stem of the seaweed seaweed? yeah um well this one was blanched you know and then it was peeled and then actually we paired that with a crowd of radish and uh parsnip marin that they did at stoneburns nice yeah i mean it was just like really briny there was acidity in there it's not how we eat it obviously in chile in chile we eat it with onion cilantro you know lemon juice olive oil which would be more like like in a fresh application yeah it's Mm -hmm. i mean this was fresh too it was cold but for you to peel the skin you have to actually in chile usually people would blanch it with sorrel you know so sorrel has a Mm -hmm. high level of acidity yeah then people cook that with the sorrel so they can peel the skin of course you know the ulte or the stipe that we have in chile is a hundred year old plant the seaweed that you guys have here is like maybe a year old or a little less so so it's literally growing for a hundred years well i mean it's all wild i mean we're as far as i know i don't see anyone who's cultivating seaweed right now so harvesting seaweed in chile is it's a wild source there is a problem with over harvesting for what i read recently when i was doing this residency we met someone who's um scientist from chile we had a collaboration call one day and she was saying you know that there is also people over harvesting. You can actually over harvest seaweed as well. Yeah. So the nice thing about Atlantic sea farms, they grow it on ropes. Incredible. They have a nursery. It's incredible. For starting the kelp farm. I was yeah. on their website this morning. It's uh-huh. beautiful. These, you know, fishermen are holding up these gorgeous sheets. Yeah, I actually have great photos of that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They start indoors mm-hmm. with yeah. little, I think it's almost, is this a spore? It's seeds. I think it's a seed yeah. or a spore, right? Atlantic Sea Farms gives the fishermen the seeds to start their yeah. right. kelp farm, if you will. And they grow it on rope. They mm-hmm. attach to rope and then they bring them out yeah, to sea. Yeah, and then when they're pulling the ropes, I mean, it's, yeah. it's like stunning. It's like amazing. I mean, they do sugar kelp and skinny kelp, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. usually I get the sugar kelp. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. the, I mean, we sell at Chef's Warehouse the sheets. Yeah, yes. that I've been buying. Yeah. yeah. We sell the slaw. Yeah. Right. Which, I've actually bought that too. Yeah, yeah. which is great. And they and also they have, have cubes. They have, for which smoothies. is great. It's like a puree. Yeah. They also have powder as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I usually use a slaw, their blades, and then hopefully next year I'll start getting their stipe again. Yeah. You're starting to see now, and they even have products in retail. Mm -hmm. People oh, can go kimchi. to Whole Foods or specialty. Yeah. They have a kimchi, yeah. which is delicious. Tell us about some of the other things that you like to do with seaweed. Mm -hmm. I was looking at your Instagram the uh -huh. other day and I saw that you had this beautiful photo of a pate or terrine uh -huh. and you said you love to make a seaweed brioche. Oh, well, actually we did that. That was at Gotham. We had a foie gras, um, mushroom and seaweed. So there was seaweed through the gelée of foie gras that we did. And then we had seaweed in the brioche. It sounds yeah. incredible. But one of the things that worked out really well was the seaweed dessert. This one is actually a chocolate ganache. It's infused with Irish moss, seaweed from Maine. It's a nice 82% chocolate. We do a kelp butter. So the kelp uh, is actually dry kelp that I use. Hydrated, cook it for like two days. Put some miso, glucose and tons of ridiculous amount of butter make that butter and then we have a milk cloud and dulls there's also dull seaweed that we get from maine and we cure with unrefined cane sugar so there's actually no white sugar on the dessert either so wow um whole grain so uh, three types whole, of yeah. seaweed in yeah. one dessert yeah and it's on the menu now Oh, yeah. Is there a flavor of seaweed? Do you think? Yeah, is it, I mean, is it the that's ocean? actually a great is question. It... The seaweed here is very mild, you know, compared to the seaweed in Chile. And I think it's because of the ocean, obviously, you know, it's much more the salinity. It's insane. So even when you eat clams in Chile compared to the clams here, there's no comparison to me. So I think obviously the seaweed in Chile has a much pungent flavor. Usually it's briny here. Obviously, it's a little fresher. You still have brininess, but you have to work with it. Like you have to give it more flavor and understand how to sort of enhance that. There's a dish that I was doing with seaweed crowd. So there's a typical cabbage crowd and then mixing sugar blades in there and let it ferment a little further, but in the fridge and having this kind of refreshing sort of salad uh, with steamed mushrooms. So we were doing that. I think also people in the United States think of seaweed salad. They think of this bright green oh, the wakame. product, this wakame yeah. that like you... It's like dyed with yeah. green yeah, this yeah, is, yeah, coloring. Yeah, it's, it's not really... <laughs> yeah, uh, and it has like some sugar too. I mean, unfortunately, Unfortunately, how we think about seaweed sometimes, I mean, it's used throughout every single industry between cosmetic and also food industry. The algae, basically, it gives, you know, body yep. and consistency to many products. But at the same time, it's like people forget that you can actually eat the seaweed and that will be much better. You mm -hmm. know, other people put sugar through it and dehydrate it and, and make it into like a cracker that is not necessarily the best for you. I think also when people learn about the health benefits, mm. it's rich in iodine. As you mentioned earlier, it's got a lot of nutrients yeah, and a lot proteins. of vitamins. Food is medicine, you know, and yep. I think sometimes people believe that for that to be medicine has to be not flavorful. And I think people have to think about deliciousness and also something that is healthy for you. I think you can have those two things instead of just moving towards something that is lack of flavor, let's say vegan, plant-based, and it's just not tasty. All right. I want to take a step back here uh -huh. because you've worked with some of the most creative chefs on the planet. You are one of the most groundbreaking creative chefs. You worked at Muguritz in Spain. Yeah. You mm -hmm. worked at Aterra. You yeah, I opened with, Aterra with Matt. Uh, you worked with Paul Libran at mm -hmm. Corton. I mean, these are super talented, creative workspaces. And then you take a product like Kelp, which is, mm -hmm. you know, it's not what most people are used to working with on a daily basis. Tell us a little bit about like the creative process 
of creating a recipe and it doesn't have to be kelp what, mm-hmm. anything I told Andrea earlier I heard about your the Vic burger is oh, it the yeah. OG Vic burger <laughs> but that's a whole other story yeah but um, is there mango in that burger there is mango in the sauce yeah. okay in the sauce yeah right. and there's a barbecue sauce with mango yeah I have funny stories about that some people can't believe that I was cooking a burger like a couple of years ago and I was like yep I did that um, but it was like a special a it was a special burger yeah yeah but I don't come from a casual dining you know so right. the interesting thing that's been going on probably the last year I would say it's like me going back into what I used to do I used to do fine dining all the time so you know that's how my career started and I started in England you know also at a two Michelin star then moving to Australia also fine dining tasting menus to your question of like how to create a dish it's interesting how I think personally you change you know and you start developing your own cuisine obviously having good people that you work for like let's say Paul or Matt or my chef in England which is the one that I always remember the most actually it was my first job it was groundbreaking what they were doing and all the techniques you know that I've learned from that place back in 2004 I still which restaurant them. which restaurant um, was that the name is called the vineyard Stockros. I mean he's not there anymore but it was a Raleigh Chateau with like 30 very expensive beautiful rooms you know we used to do absolutely everything from fine dining in the restaurant to weddings it was a really good school for me of course there's things that stay with you that you learned I mean usually they're technique driven you know flavor combination but once you start developing your own cuisine too you are curious to you know, have that voice, right? And how that voice is going to be shaping your food. Obviously, I never really worked with anyone that used kelp or seaweed. I think when we had seaweed at Corton with Paul was decoration. Beautiful seaweed coming from Monterey. Or a few things that they were more like a garnish. It's hard to understand how to work with that as a main dish but I think I go back to Chile and I try to see okay so how is it that I was eating seaweed you know how do I see seaweed from my country I sort of have a reinterpretation of that how would I eat it I always think about what is delicious to me and what can be also interesting to someone else I think about a flavor combination and then I think about how to give it lightness I think sometimes also things are a little bit too heavy even with meat is the food in Chile light I I mean I don't know a whole lot about it but when I was I did a lot of uh, reading last night a lot Uh of articles about you and it just sounds like at different points in your life you always kind of go back there it seems like it's a place for you to I don't know if it's to get ideas or if it's just because it's home my career has all been in Western kitchens, mm-hmm. you know, all very white too, very European driven, French, English, you know, I've worked for so many English chefs. So, you know, I think I had a thing for that for years, <laughs> trying to understand how to develop my own voice. You kind of have to go back to your roots and you have to understand how you marriage, you know, the things that you've learned and who you are as a more cosmopolitan, probably person living in so many countries. And then obviously coming from Chile, you know, and South America, which I think South America is the future of food source. It's such a young continent still with so much to offer. Finally, now I think I have a place to develop my own voice that I don't have to pay, you know, sort of respects to all these skeletons around, you know, like if I go to Gotham, I had to make sure the meat program stayed on you know if I was at Chumley's you know of course I understand that I have to have a burger now I can just sort of dictate the rules a little bit better of like what I want people sort of to eat I think that point about the rise of South American chefs is a a really great point Um, I think that you know this old model of European dominated cuisine with Spanish and French chefs and, and chefs from Spain is really being changed quite a bit in the last few years And even in the United States, if I think of some of the, you know, yourself included, but Hmm. these chefs from South America that are really making 
headway in the kitchen. I, you know, a friend of mine, Ignacio Matos, mm. yeah, who started sure. Estella um, and has a very cafe- unique voice as well. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, I think people need to understand that when you're an immigrant, you have a very different point of view. You yeah. know, you recollect things, but then you interpret things in a different way. Yeah. And I found it fascinating. I find the food vastly more creative because I think there's a freedom yeah, that you're so not too. having to follow the Escofie's rules. Yeah. rules. I mean, or- we started like that. You know, I think everyone, when you come from South America and I, you know, haven't lived in Chile in 20 years, I left a, a long time ago. You're always looking out, you know, because of opportunities, you know, and that's still pretty much the same. I, I've always been amazed by the quality of the raw ingredients in South America whenever I've been lucky enough to travel through mm-hmm. most of the continent. For me, one of the most eye-opening meals I've had in my life was in Peru at Virgilio Martinez's restaurant. Oh, okay. Central there, right. on a subsequent trip to Chile mm-hmm. had wild abalone, which you don't really see anymore in, in well, actually, anywhere. Well, in Chile you don't see it much either. It's been yeah. completely extinct. Yeah, yeah same thing bad. with uh, sea urchin. Now we have, you know, the seasons. That's the problem you have in South America. It's also you like keep, you know, eating your resources and not understanding that they won't be there. It's the problem everywhere. I mean, you hear about it. There's documentaries on Netflix. and I mean, look at Japan, too. I right, mean, exactly. You know. yeah. yeah. So 2020 obviously was very impactful on the entire world, let alone the restaurant industry. You had a great opportunity earlier this year mm-hmm. to do a chef in residency program at Blue Hill Stone Barns up here in Westchester yeah. uh, with Dan Barber and his team. What was that like? Um, yeah, and how did I mean, that come about? <laughs> That was just an email. I had a job um, mid-pandemic in uh, in Connecticut, Washington, Connecticut. Um, and it was complicated, you know. I mean, working in the middle of a pandemic, some people not aware of what's going on, demanding the same product. It was just pretty insane. I finished that in September and I got an email from Dan. And I've always been, of course, a big admirer, always had a good relationship with him. And then we started having a conversation and it just worked out. I mean, the experience was amazing. You said you really like collaboration. Yeah. That was something that like stuck out to me when I was, you know, researching you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing that chef in residence. You're doing Uh another one now. What's your next collaboration going to be? Well, I'm going to be collaborating with other people, but I'm opening a restaurant. So I'm going to open my own restaurant in November. Oh, wow. That's soon. Can you talk to us about that? Not much, but it's in the city. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Woman to woman. What's it been like to you know, be a woman in the kitchen, mm. female chef opening a restaurant. We we hear a lot of stories. It's challenging. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. I do think that people are sort of tired of listening to that, which is kind of, I would say, really sure-minded. Mm-hmm. A lot of people right now are like, oh, you know, we've talked about female chefs for like, what, since like 2018, you know, the Me Too movement. People are like, okay, is this, this conversation is enough. And I said, I don't think it's enough. I think we need to keep talking about it because it's incredibly difficult. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to hire uh, female cooks. You know, there's just a struggle to understand the work that you need to do the sacrifices that you have to make, not understanding that the the more you move up, the more work you have to do. Sure. And I wish there could be more collaborations with female chefs. It's just that sometimes you don't even know where they are because everyone's like grinding, you know, everyone's like right there. Just head down, doing, just head working. Down, doing the hard work yeah. and not anyone paying attention to who's the person doing that. There's more opportunity now, for sure. I mean, things have changed quite a bit compared to like, I don't know, I've been cooking for 17 years, you know, and I was the only female in the kitchen in in England. I was the only female when I was in Australia. I mean, I was literally all the time, it was pretty much the only female up to like, 
I don't know, eight years ago. Do you try to hire female cooks, female chefs, or is I it mean, more based on like talent? And- it's based on talent, to be honest with you. And, you know, a lot of people is like, try. I was like, you can't really put an ad to say I'm only going to hire female chefs because also your intentions are kind of weird to me. You know, I want to work with people that are really good at what they do. And I love diversity. So it's not just women. It's not just men. Of course. I want to work with people that are are intentional, you know, that they have good intentions about what they want to do. And that is intense. You know, I think sometimes people forget that you, you gotta be like that if you want to keep moving up. Well, we are so excited for your restaurant to open. Thank you. I think you should name it Queen of Kelp. That's just my <laughs> idea. I don't know. Kelp Hero? Yeah. We're actually well, still thinking about a name. So yeah, okay. that's good. So keep that yeah. one in mind. Well, keep it in mind. QOK. Thank you so yeah, much for your time. Yeah, we'd love to have you in, yeah. guys, and eat some seaweed. I love it. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Atlantic Sea Farms, producing sustainably farmed kelp from the Gulf of Maine. The products are favorites among top chefs and available through the Chef's Warehouse for Restaurant Professionals and can be found at your local specialty store. Our next guest is Brianna Warner from Atlantic Sea Farms. She's based up in Portland, Maine. She is leading the kelp revolution, as I like to call it. So welcome, Bri. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here with you, John. A lot of people that are listening, whether they're professional chefs or whether they're at home, their idea of kelp is something that, you know, maybe they're swimming at the ocean and, you know, they pulled, <laughs> a, you know, a seaweed out and, and that was their knowledge of kelp. And obviously, there's a lot more about this incredible uh, sea vegetable, if you will. So I'd love for you to just tell us a bit about, you know, what is kelp? What is the difference between, say, kelp and seaweed? And, you know, tell us a little bit about the history of Atlantic Sea Farms. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm so glad you talked to Victoria. She's such a rock star in the culinary world. And the fact that she uses kelp sort of constantly and she works with our kelp quite a bit, but she uses it in really different applications. I think when many people that do eat kelp, they think of, you know, the seaweed snacks or that bright green seaweed salad you can buy at grocery stores. And Victoria's out there using kelp as as it should be used in, in general, which is just for its umami taste and its beautiful green color. And it's been really inspiring to see all the ways that she's used it in her dishes. So I'm super excited that you talked to her. Uh, She's a great partner. So this is Uh, a sustainable product. That's right. Yeah. So it's definitely different than what you find on your beach, although some of it is the same species depending on where you are. But we do line grown seaweed, which if you've ever, you know, seen pictures of China, Japan, Indonesia, off the coast, you see like these kind of giant seaweed farms. It's very different. It's aquaculture of seaweed. And it's very different for Americans to think about here on our coast, because in fact, the first commercial seaweed farm didn't start in the United States until 2009. So it's it's an incredibly new industry here in in the States. And that first seaweed farm was actually Ocean Approved, which is the parent company of Atlantic Sea Farms. It was a very novel thing at the time and very small. And I think in the last three years, what we've seen is sort of kelp everywhere. Kelp is having a moment. I'm going to guess that most people have no idea. You know, you think about a farm, you think about taking a seed, planting it in the soil. Tell us how you grow. You don't go into the bottom of the ocean and plant seeds, do you? We don't, but that is, uh, it would be neat to figure out how to do that. Um, (laughs) But no, what we do is we grow seeds in a nursery. So our nursery is kind of, it looks like a lab, but what it is, is we take about 10, 15 pounds of wild seaweed and we kind of go out hunting for the type of seaweed that we think would be best. We go to some natural beds, we dive, we look for, you know, the stuff that's the most beautiful, the longest, the tastiest. We actually take bites of it and then we bring it in and, and we basically reproduce 
produce it here in the lab through its natural reproduction process by giving it seawater to let out its seeds in. And then uh, we incubate those seeds for about 30 days on long line. And then what we do is we work with partner farmers all along the coast of Maine. We give those seeds to our partner farmers for free, and then they grow those seeds for about six months in the open ocean. And that's about seven feet under the surface on a thousand foot horizontal lines, if that can sort of explain it. So think of a thousand foot line in the water held up by moorings on each side, about seven feet under, and that's where the seaweed does its growing. And in the spring, it can grow like three inches a day. So it's this incredibly efficient, effective way to grow a food. And we do it with no fertilizers, no pesticides, no arable land, no inputs. And it actually helps remove carbon and nitrogen from the water. So it's doing all sorts of good work while it's being planted and when it's grown. And then when it's pulled out of the water, it's one of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. And we turn it into delicious products from there that chefs and retail customers can use across the country. Are you constantly harvesting it? Or is there a, t- a time of year that you're you know, pulling it out of the ocean and then processing it? We work with fishermen as a source of diversification. So just kind of for some context here on the coast of Maine, our water is warming faster than 99% of oceans in the world. It is a dramatic change. We're predominantly, but almost completely dependent on the lobster industry on our coast to keep our economy afloat. And we have these 4,000 plus lobster license holders, which while they're doing very well right now, because the lobster industry is thriving, that future is threatened. And it's increasingly volatile year over year as the climate changes and the water warms and the sea levels rise. And so kelp actually is farmed in the winter which is the off-season the lobster. It's perfectly counter-seasonal to lobster, and it uses the same equipment and the same skill set as lobstering does. It's grown in the winter between October and about April, May, June is when we start har- is when we harvest. The guys and gals put their lobster traps back in in June and and fish until November, and then it starts all over. Now, what is the kelp or seaweed do for the water? We know that kelp can help remove carbon and nitrogen from the water column while it's growing. It's a local effect, but basically we call it the kelp halo. Within that kelp halo, we have too much carbon in the air. The ocean is absorbing that carbon and it's becoming more acidic as a result of that. The shells are degraded by that increased acidity. But when you plant mussels underneath our kelp farms, and we've done several scientific studies on this, because the kelp is removing carbon from the water, we actually find the shell strength is almost double as strong in mussels underneath the kelp halo than those about 500 feet outside of the halo, simply because of that reduction in carbon in that in that immediate halo area. So you get better meat, you get sweeter meat, and you get harder shells and better growth patterns because of the reduced acidification. I mean, this really is the definition of a superfood, the sustainable aspect of it, but accomplishing a lot of things at once. One, you're helping supplement incomes for these lobster farmers. You're purifying the waters of the Gulf of Maine, you're increasing the quality of other seafood products out there, and you're providing a very healthy, nutrient-rich superfood to the consumers of the, the world. It's, it's really quite incredible. This is not actually a new food, um, whether it's in Asia or Europe or even the United States. Um, in the 1800s, people were foraging 
seaweeds and eating them. Seaweed farming has been around for a very long time. It just took us Americans a long time to get around to it. Similar to what you said, wild harvest of seaweed has been a tradition in many coastal communities around the world forever. In Maine, here where we're growing all of our seaweed, you know, the Irish brought with them when they came to this area of the world, a deep culinary tradition in Irish food based in wild harvested seaweed. What happened is in the 50s, it sort of fell out of vogue at the time when everyone was putting in everything into more processed food, as is the case with so much of our food. And so the seaweed history of American cuisine sort of faded out. And that started to change again somewhere in the early 90s with the advent um, in the United States of people understanding that they liked sushi. And so those nori sheets started coming in. And now you look out at every grocery store in the United States and there's sushi. It's no longer this foreign concept. But in the 90s, that was a very new thing. Along with that came seaweed snacks. You know, if you look at any Gen Z's lunchbox, you're going to find seaweed snacks. It's one of the fastest growing and most saturated categories in the retail market. So there is sort of a deep tradition around seaweed in, in, in American cuisine. But since the 90s, it become somewhat ubiquitous. Unfortunately, the only seaweed that had been on the market until 2018 when I took over Atlantic Sea Farms and we changed the name and the mission and came up with some new products is that everything was dried and either rehydrated into that bright green seaweed salad that we see everywhere that has all the dyes in it that are Mountain Dew or, you know, in the form of a snack. So no one was actually able to get their hands on a fresh seaweed. It's kind of like getting a kale chip and trying to, you know, rehydrate it. So what we're providing is is a fresh seaweed. And what that means from a nutrient perspective is we're taking the kelp right out of the water. We're blanching it. We're fermenting it in some cases into a fermented seaweed salad or a sea beet kraut, which is a beet-based sauerkraut, or a sichi, which is our version of kimchi made with seaweed, or into blanched, shredded, ready-cut kelp is what we call it because it's it's basically you defrost it and put it on a salad or on a pasta and it gives you the taste of the fresh seaweed that's out there uh, with the food safety and the knowledge of traceability um, that you get with with our products. You know, it's one of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet with calcium, potassium, iodine, all of those things. And kelp is one of the natural ways to get iodine into your system, which promotes thyroid health. Potassium, omega-3s, calcium, magnesium, it's full of basically everything. It's a way that vegans in particular can get nutrients from the ocean uh, or vegetarians without eating fish. Uh, and without having to taste fish, because kelp tastes like a vegetable, not like the ocean. And I think that that is a really good way for, for a new group to get the minerals and vitamins from the ocean that they can't get if they don't eat fish. When you eat kelp on its own, is it salty or is it salty from the ocean? John and I have been out on boats up here in Maine. And, and when you take it out of the ocean, it's definitely briny. It's not oyster briny, but it's a little bit briny. For chefs who know how to work with it, we sell fresh frozen seaweed. And the great thing about frozen seaweed is this kelp defrosts and refreezes twice a day in the water at low tide in the winter. Defrosting it is the same as, as having a fresh product. But for the American consumer, generally that aren't chefs that don't know how to make something like that turn into something beautiful, we blanch the product and it basically tastes like green beans. And because what we're doing is we're knocking off that salt water content and making it just kind of this beautiful green vegetable that's still packed with nutrients. It has a slight umami taste, but is much less uh, forceful than the raw product. I mean, it is such a cool process. Andrea, you got to take a trip up to Maine. Um, in the spring of 2019, I was very lucky to accompany Melissa Clark from the New York Times, who was writing a story about Atlantic Sea Farms mm -hmm. and the whole aquaculture surrounding kelp in the region. It's and around when we started selling it. 
Yes. Yeah. And Bree uh, took us out on a, a lobster boat with a lobster man, but they weren't fishing for lobsters. It was springtime, which in Maine means it was about 20 degrees out. It was a, a balmy day in April. It was just amazing to watch them pull up these ropes. So with, just like pulling up lines of... Yes. Instead of, of pulling up the lines with lobster traps at the bottom, they were pulling up these lines with hundreds of feet of kelp on them and they would bring them on deck. And to me, the whole process was so fascinating. Um, and then when you couple it with, you know, yeah. thinking about all these positive attributes, it's starting to show up more and more in fine dining restaurants. In 2019, later that year, I was out in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to Spago Beverly Hills, Wolfgang mm -hmm. Puck's famous restaurant. I was very pleasantly surprised right before they started serving the food, they brought out bread and butter. And instead of just regular bread and butter or flavored butter, they brought out a plate of bread and seaweed butter. Yum. And I was like, wow, look yeah. at this. We're out in L.A. seeing that. And then we had, you know, Victoria has been talking to us about, you know, all the different uses that she. Yeah, she's not, using like the byproduct. She, she's the using the stipe. So yeah. you're talking about like ultra, you know, it's almost like head to tail utilization of kelp where nothing is going to waste. And then the other fascinating thing that we heard about was do they feed kelp to cows to reduce methane? Or is that just an old wives tale from Maine? <laughs> No, it's actually, it's a new wives' tale. Um, no, but we are working on a lot of studies right now with, with several different organizations on actually testing that out. So there's been some robust and informative studies coming out of Australia right now for, for red seaweeds, which is a, a different type of seaweed than the kelp that we're growing that's not native to here. In those red seaweeds that they've fed the cows, they found up to a 75% reduction in methane emissions from those cows when fed a steady diet of a kelp supplement within their feed. Does it change the um, flavor of the, of the meat? At all? So far, I don't know the answer to that. And it's one of the questions that we all have, like, what is the marketability of this thing, right? And right now we're working with Bigelow Laboratories here in Maine to test the same thing on kelp. They're finding the same results with our kelp on cows. But just as you said, well, there's still a lot to learn. I mean, another one is fish feed. And that's something that, you know, would be a more natural input for, for fish. Fish eat seaweed. It's part of their natural environment. There's already microalgae being put into fish feed, sustainably line-grown kelp actually be used in fish farming, which could mitigate some of the negatives around potential animal feed problems in the ocean. There's a ton of possibilities beyond human food. We're certainly focused on human food and we have very low waste streams, but our whole idea for doing this business is based around how do we get fishermen to, to diversify and adapt in the face of climate change. And if we could be in the food market, in the ingredient market, in the nutraceutical market. You know, we wouldn't be producing these products, but we would have raw products for these people to use. We just started a powdered kelp, which people are using in uh, nutraceutical pills that are swapping out for the stuff from Asia because the heavy metal content um, of the stuff from Asia is horrendous and the traceability is low. You know, other people are using it in pastas and burgers and other things that this powder is being used for. And so our feeling right now is let's put kelp on everything because every time someone eats some of this kelp or puts it on their meals or puts it in their nutraceuticals, we can get more farmers in the water and we're having a substantial impact on our coast just as the lobster industry is becoming increasingly volatile. You know, at Chef's Warehouse, we have, uh, you know, a really nice history in the last five years of, uh, you know, promoting and getting these products out to some of the best chefs in the country. It hasn't been easy because it's not really recognized mm -hmm. by chefs in America yet. But Chefs have to be super creative I when they're say, using it. Yeah. But Bree's efforts late last year, I think you got the product onto a salad at Sweetgreen. Mm -hmm. 
if I'm not yeah, correct. We, and, we did a collaboration with David Chang and it was one of the best selling bowls at Sweet Green. And it was just a quarter cup of ready cut kelp on a salad with some other really great spices. And you're right, John. I mean, you and I have been in the trenches for a few years on this together and you guys have provided us so much support and got us in front of so many people to tell our story and get the product out there. And I think it's starting to catch on, John. I think some really exciting people are, are behind it. And, and I know that you and I are looking at this now like, okay, we're here now. This is very different than three years ago. You know, you have people like Victoria who are championing kelp on the menu, not because they believe in the social mission, although she definitely does, but because it tastes good, because she's excited about what it does to her food. And I think that's a real change and a real shift. And I think it's a it's a great time to be to be doing this. Absolutely. I mean, when we first started going at it, we used to say, "Hey, kelp is the new kale." <laughs> and I don't think we don't say that anymore. Now we just say, no. "Listen, it's kelp," and and we extol all the virtues of of this product from sustainability to health to just quality of the flavor and the umami print, you that's know, right. factor. It's here to stay. We cannot be grateful enough to have you on today. It's been really educational for myself and everybody who's listening. And we look forward to the future of kelp and Atlantic Sea Farms. Thank you for having me on. And, and this year we, you know, we had a record kelp harvest. I think we've grown the kelp supply in the United States by 12,000% in two years or something. So Incredible. it's exciting. It's now's the time where we can start doing the volumes that we really want to be doing and, and make an impact and I just appreciate you highlighting kelp and what we're building up here in Maine and, and being such fantastic supporters. Thank you so much for being such a great partner with Chef's Warehouse and for talking with us today. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Ingredient Insiders Where Chefs Talk. Like what you hear? Write us a review and follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.